great to be here with you this morning. Um, let's open in prayer. Lord, it's such a privilege to belong to you, to be your people together here. And we do lift our voices and exalt your name today. We're here, gathered before you, and we're listening, Lord. If you would speak to us today, we would rejoice to hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't fall weather wonderful? Man, I love this time of year. Back years ago, we had uh, an old squirrel dog in Louisiana. His name was Coon Dog, um, for whatever reason. But uh, uh, he was old and tired and worn out. But uh, uh, when the cool weather came, he would start to come to life a little bit and get excited again. And I may have done this more than once. I don't know. At least once I, I went out to him, I think, just making my brother laugh. I went out to him and I acted like I was a faith healer because I thought I could make something happen. I put my hand down on his head, you know, old, poor, decrepit coon dog. I said, coon dog, do you believe that I can heal you? And I said, he believes. And I looked up and I said, coon dog, be healed. And I jumped back, you know, to excite him on purpose. And then he starts jumping and spinning around and <laughs> like he's been restored to life. That's the way I feel when fall weather comes around. I just want to explode with, with the, the healing. <laughs> well, I want to tell you something about myself today. I don't want this to come off as uh, superficially pious or trite, churchy language, but I want to tell you this because it's behind all that I'm doing and all that I say to you in the weeks that have been already and the weeks to come. I love Jesus. I mean, I, I really love him, and I want you to as well. I uh, was in my early 20s when I encountered a book called The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. I've told you before, and you've heard me quote Dallas Willard. I'm, I uh, have quotes from, from Willard about almost everything. But this book uh, changed my life because uh, in it, Willard was talking about Jesus, Jesus in a way I'd never heard anybody talk about him. And in a way, I, I feel like that's where I really met Jesus, is uh, in, in that book. And as, as he explained Jesus as he appears in the Gospels, and uh, he described Jesus as brilliant and kind and good and powerful and magnetic. And uh, I read things like, if you've looked at our website, you see this little quote up there, these, these lines. He said, when we see Jesus as he really is, we must turn away or else shamelessly adore him. And I want to tell you today that I shamelessly adore Jesus. I don't think there's anybody like him in all the world. And in that book, uh, as Willard described Jesus in this way, he, he pointed out that the greatest opportunity that anybody has in life is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's true. I bought what he was selling back then 20 years ago. And that doesn't mean I had an easy road or that I have it all together. I certainly don't. I'm still a mess. Um, but I am a mess who loves Jesus. 
and uh, who wants my life to be given over to him completely and uh, to be his servant in all things. Growing, uh, the more you know me, the more you'll know how far I have to go. But, uh, but that's the direction of my life because he's the greatest. There is nobody who compares with him. And I just want you to know the greatest opportunity you will ever have in life is to sign up in classes with Jesus and say, I want to learn to live life. You're going to learn to live life anyway. <laughs> and you're going to learn from somebody anyway. Uh, you can sign up with Jesus and say, I want to learn this life with Jesus. Even if you're old and you haven't signed up yet, he may fast track you because of your age. You can sign up and learn to live life with Jesus. Everything we're talking about comes back to that core reality. We're talking about emotionally healthy discipleship. That's because we want to walk with Jesus in the world. It's not because we want to do clever programs with church. When we talk about worship, as we're going to here in a couple of weeks, actually we're talking about walking with Jesus. And we're going to see how that, that's connected. When we talk today about the church being a family, we're talking about walking with Jesus. and talking about living the life that he's placed before us and that he's left in the world for us to inhabit. This is the great opportunity we have. And you can get in on it. Thank God for that. As we discuss church as family today, let me just say something to you up front. We have to be careful with this family terminology that we don't allow it to fall into this kind of vacuous, empty cultural terrain. Because I've just noticed this. You notice how much family language floats around? I think I saw a commercial one time for AT&T talking about the AT&T family. 100,000 employees, whatever it is. What kind of family is that? Now, if you think, when we talk about the Irving Church family, we're using language in the same way that AT&T is using it, then you're likely to think that doesn't mean very much. But I want to tell you that, that when we talk about family, if we're talking biblically, we're talking about something very, very differently than, uh, we're using the term very differently than it's used broadly in our world today, in, in a lot of announcements that are made, whether it's businesses or churches or whatever, we're talking about something that is meant to shape our world. It's meant to be a grounding reality for the body of Christ. And unfortunately, we've largely lost this, partially probably a cultural thing in our individualistic society. We have a weak group, what social anthropologists call a weak group society in the United States today. And we don't have a, a, a healthy understanding, or, or at least not a, an understanding that, that's uh, in agreement with the early church, the first century, where they would have understood groups to matter. We don't, we don't have that very much in our world today. And we have a real emphasis on everybody being their individuals and going their own way and doing their own thing. So we have cultural force, forces against us. We also have just church traditions against us, where people have a, adapted to a certain way of being in church together. And they don't think that that family language of church should mean anything more than just a, like I said, just a tagline, just a, yeah, we can stick this on anything, family. That's not what it was for the first Christians. That's not what it was for Jesus. Jesus was very intentional about forming the church as family, and I want to show you that uh, in the scriptures today. But as we're, as we're thinking about this, let me just say to you that what we're really talking about, if you can, if you can hear this, we're really just talking about love. but love that becomes concrete and becomes something more than just words. We might define love as a genuine interest in, a genuine interest in and commitment to the well-being of those around us. And we have a, a genuine, a sincere interest in and commitment to others' well-being. That's when we're starting to walk like Jesus walked. 
And when we talk about church as family, we're talking about that kind of love. And again, much like with the family terminology, love terminology is so overused in our society. Sometimes you see rock stars up on stage, like, I love you. It's like thousands of people around. What do they mean by that? Everybody tosses around, I love you type language. And it becomes very empty to us. You know, that means I, I really like the fact that you like me. <laughs> I really like it how much you clap for me. That's not love in a biblical sense. So we have to, we have to remind ourselves of what we're called to. It's something very different. And here I think it's helpful to hear the, the words that we have in 1 John. Let me pull, pull this up for you. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. Right from the very start, they had heard this message. Right at the start of the Christian life, they had gotten this message about love. It was part of the foundation. It wasn't an innovation. That's what John's telling them. This is not something new I'm bringing to you. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is, always, is already shining. You see, this is something that still is a new commandment. It's old because they've had it from the beginning, but it's new because it is a part of a new world. You see, if love has started to seem old to you, let me suggest to you that you're not really seeing love as it's described in Scripture. This is something new on the pages of history, and it's new every time it takes up residence in an individual and in a body of people. It is a brand new way of life. And it's here because the true light has already begun shining. This is not just about a new ethic. This is about a new age. A new dawning in time that came with Jesus and his resurrection, starting everything over again and saying, now there's a new way to be. That light has already shined and is continuing to shine. And so love that grows in that world is a new thing. It's a fresh thing. It's a striking thing. We cannot then accept the status quo. No matter how it may have been baptized by the church. We cannot say, well, this is normal. This is what I've gotten used to. This must be the way it is everywhere. It is not. It was not. Love, as it's given to us in Scripture, is a brand new thing. And we are called on to learn it in a new way. Look at how it's described in chapter 3 of 1 John. And we can, John is just love-soaked. The, the first John is just love-soaked. We can look at all kinds of things he says about it. I've just chosen a few verses here. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Did you hear that message at the beginning of your Christian life? in a way that takes it beyond superficial things? Did you hear a message that accompanied the gospel that said you're being born into a new life of love? It's going to be different than anything that you've ever known before. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Wow. Wow. Whoever does not love abides in death. Surely this is not what the rock stars are talking about when they stand on stage and say, I love you. 
or even what our romantic songs on the radio talk about when they say, oh, I need you so much, I could never live without you. That's not passing from death into life. We're actually given the foundation for it in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. See, that's the kind of love we're talking about right there. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters. Now, that's, that's what you're in on in Christ. A new way of being. A way of prioritizing your brothers and sisters that if necessary, well, you would give your life. That's what Jesus' example shows us. But then Jesus' whole life shows us how to love our brothers and sisters. And that's a world-changing idea. We have traded, many times in the church, we have traded life from above for good manners. And learning how to be pleasant and nice with each other when we come to church. But that's not the life from above. When we pass from death into life, we learn how to walk in the world like Jesus walked. And this is because the light is already shining. Don't miss that point. That light, it's not us. It's not reaching down deep inside and finding it in you. It's letting the light dawn on me and on you and on this church community. And that light shines and it dispels the darkness. That's why there's something new. This is the new wine that can't be contained in old wineskins. This is new life that overcomes death. This is new light that scatters the darkness. This is what we're in on in Christ. In the same way that I told you about the Lord's Supper a while back, I don't believe in the Lord's Supper like we talk about it being a powerful thing because, uh, because just it's the Lord's Supper. I believe in it because I believe Jesus is alive. And I don't believe in Christian community because community is a cool thing. And we all want to be into community. I believe in Christian community because I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And I don't think he rose from the grave and poured out his Holy Spirit upon us so that we can brush shoulders at church and learn to be a little bit nicer. Learn to have good manners. That's not the life that Jesus came to bring and that's not the light that God has shined in our world. I want you to know that there is a real love by the Holy Spirit that forms churches into families. Some of you know this well, and I'm not trying to tell you things that you don't know. You've experienced it. You know it's transforming. I imagine others of you are here, and you have become frustrated because you haven't seen it. And you've wondered if it's just all talk. Maybe it's just words on the page. I want you to know it's not. It's real. The life of Christ, the love of Christ, that forms relationships in a different kind of way is a real thing. And you can find it. A week ago when we had our first Peacemakers Night, and all you guys, our Mexican brothers and sisters, were sharing with us, um, I sat there, and uh, I just wanted to stand up and say, I love you. As I listened to you, and I saw who you were, 
That's what the Lord does for us in community. He begins to pour love into our hearts in ways that wouldn't normally happen. These relationships don't normally form. These cares and concerns for other people's perspectives don't normally form. But in Christ they do by the power of God. So when we say we, that the church is a family, we're talking about love. New love that the light of Christ has poured out into our world. So I want, I want to say a little bit more about this idea to you, show you how Jesus took this uh, and was so intentional about it. Have you ever wondered why people belong to gangs? You ever thought much about that? Violent gangs, do a lot of bad stuff. When Olivia and I lived in Los Angeles, we used to notice how uh, the gangs would spray paint these big bubble letters, graffiti, all kinds of things. Uh, I don't know if you have that a lot around here in Dallas, but it's all over the place in LA. There was even one game, gang, it was called the Barf Gang. We are like, who, who calls themselves the Barf Gang and spray paints it on, on all kinds of things? And we used to laugh and talk about how how uh, it just seems ironic that to belong to these gang, gangs, you have, to, you have to be able to paint in bubble letters. Like, you know? Like, can you use a gun? Yeah. Can you use a knife? Yeah. Can you paint in big, beautiful bubble letters? <laughs> doesn't, seem, doesn't seem natural, but that's what they do all over the place, paint, painting, painting on these overpasses or whatever. People belong to gangs because they're looking for acceptance. They join gangs because God has made us as human beings to need relationships, to need community. We weren't made to function on our own. And sometimes people, they, they're not just bad at the core. They aren't just corrupt in their hearts, but they're so deeply in need of people who will accept them and say, you have value to us. That when they find that, they say, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, sure, I'll go with you because you're accepting me. You're saying I'm something important. And I find an identity now grounded in belonging with you. And where we find our collective identity, where we place ourselves, will always impact how we live out our lives. Jesus understood that. And he knew that his people needed a people. <laughs> that they weren't meant just to find themselves in isolation and, and live their lives on their own, trying to work things out for him. And so he taught us something about how to live in community, and then it spread down throughout the New Testament. Have you ever noticed, and we're not, I'm not going to take time to look at all these passages, but have you ever noticed how much brother and sister language is in the New Testament? Over and over again, brother and sister, brother and sister. A lot of times when it's an intense emotional appeal, my brothers, my sisters. Do you ever think that it didn't have to be that way? They didn't have to choose that language. They were doing that on purpose. Imagine if AT&T sent out a memo my beloved brothers and sisters. <laughs> Has a different feel to it, doesn't it? But, th but that's because uh, the New Testament writers, they understood what Jesus had done in creating a new family. And they were intentionally trying to help people identify as a family in the body of Christ. Let me show you one very important passage here in Matthew chapter 12. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold... His mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven 
is my brother and sister and mother. Now I want you to know that was a startling claim that Jesus was making, especially in the first century when there was nothing more important than your primary kinship group, your, your family commitments. Imagine how it felt for some lady to be there in the audience and Jesus says, you're my sister. Not because that's what we call preacher's wives. <laughs> because I am literally changing the way we relate from now on. You're my sister. You're my brother right now. See, Jesus didn't just say, let me form a new community. Let me gather some students around me. He said, I'm going to form a family. And he did this on purpose. He knew what he was doing. This means that all our priorities have to be reevaluated in light of Jesus' family, even the care we have for our own families. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I love my own family very deeply, and I believe that Jesus wants us to do that. But Jesus seems to be challenging. If you pay attention to what he says, repeatedly actually, in the Gospels, he seems to be challenging this idea that the family comes first. And you see, sometimes in our society today, you get the idea that uh, Jesus wants you to put your family before everything, even him. Maybe we wouldn't say it like that, but that's where the emphasis seems to fall. And yet Jesus is pushing back on things like that repeatedly in the, in the Gospels. One of the dangers today is that we won't hear Jesus' words clearly because we've been so indoctrinated by our culture and the things it says about family that we can't hear Jesus tell us, no, I have a family. And it's to be the priority of your life. And sometimes that may cause great problems in your own biological family. And many of you probably know that already. Jesus was very clear about that. He said, I, I haven't come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. I'm going to turn father against son, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, etc." You know how he said that? I mean, he knew that what he was doing was going to cause people to evaluate their priorities. And they were going to have to decide, is he really worth it? Is he the most important thing? Even more important than my own family. You know the number one reason people give for not going into the mission field today? Their parents don't want them to. The number one reason people give for not going. And you know, Olivia and I, for all our imperfections as parents, uh, we're trying to raise our kids so they know that God may call them to the mission field. And wherever he calls, they're supposed to go. And I will cry. <laughs> I'll cry when they leave me, but I will thank God because I'll know I've done my job. Um, I have pointed them to Christ and said, his family is the number one thing on your list. It's the most important thing you'll ever be associated with. Jesus was redefining family in the things that he said. Look at this passage here. Another one of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father, and then I'll follow you. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. This was outrageous. 
burial of the dead was one, a sacred duty in that society for both, both Greek and Jew. It's one of the most impious things you could do to say, I'm not going to take care of the burial of my parents. Jesus says, follow me first. And don't worry what anybody says about you. Don't worry if anybody puts you down for not doing your duty, because your first duty is to me. Our first duty is to him today. Listen to what N.T. Wright comments on this uh, passage. The only explanation for Jesus' astonishing command is that he envisioned loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family. That's the only way it makes sense of the moral values involved. Now, hopefully, you don't have to replace your family to follow Jesus. Some people have. But if you have Christ-following family or family that at least is understanding of being Christ-following, you can still love your family and thank God for that. Like I said, I'm a big believer in loving our families. But I'm not a believer in prioritizing our families above the kingdom of God. Listen to the words of uh, Alexander Schmemann. He's a Greek Orthodox theologian. He's talking about marriage, but tying it to the family overall. The real sin of marriage today is not adultery. It is the idolization of the family itself, the refusal to understand marriage as directed toward the kingdom of God. The family has here ceased to be for the glory of God. It is not the lack of respect for the family. It is the idolization of the family that breaks the modern family so easily making divorce its almost natural shadow. We have to stop. There's a line that's coming back to me right now as I'm talking to you from one of our hymns, or one of the hymns in, in the songbook. I, I've just, I don't even know the song. I just know the, the words. I've come across it. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Sometimes that's what we have to do with our family. Whatever the idol is, we tear it from the throne of Jesus and we worship only him. And when we learn not to idolize our families, then we can learn how to live in Christian community. Let me just say it to you like this. Church, as it is commonly understood, and I'm not accusing you, you may be way ahead of the game on this, okay? But church, as it's commonly, broadly understood, is not really church as it appears in the Bible. Coming to church is not church. I mean, it's a part of the church. I don't mean to minimize it. Sometimes people go overboard on the other side of this, and they start to act like gathering to worship is unimportant, and I don't agree with that at all. But that's not the entirety of the church. Church, as it's commonly understood today, where you come in and you brush shoulders and you're polite and you go on your way and you say, hey, I'll give you a call sometime. Let's get together sometime. That's not really church. Church, as it appears in Scripture, is a body of believers who have learned to share their lives together. That's the only way 
to really learn the command of love. I think somebody said one time, we have to go to church so we can learn to love our enemies. <laughs> but you see, you don't really have to do that the way church is practiced today. You can zip in and out, take different doors and go on your way. But if you actually share life together, you're going to have to learn to love your enemies. <laughs> you're going to have to learn to love through conflict and struggles and, and seeing the brokenness up close of the people we're with. That's real discipleship. That's getting in people's lives. Jesus gathered people around him and said, walk with me. And they learned how to be together. They learned how he loved them. And they learned how to pass that love on them after he was gone. That's what the church is called to be. Just, just one scripture we can look at that is a, is a beautiful illustration of this in Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Have you seen this happen before? It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when two people who really don't have any connection with each other other than the bond of Christ. And one of them's crying because the other one's crying. <laughs> because they've learned how to live together in the love of Jesus. But you see, you can't just do that by brushing shoulders with people and saying, I want to go on my merry way and live my life and have my family over here and, and do the things I want to do and have my job and pursue the athletics and pursue the academics and then go to church on Sunday and then come out of that and everything will be great. That's, I mean, I, God's mercy is great for us and all our, our mistakes and ignorance and God blesses people in those kind of things. I don't mean to be critical, but it's just not the calling of the New Testament. It's not the church as it's described in the New Testament. We're called to life where love really is deep and true and where we know how to cry when a brother and sister cries. We know how to be happy when they're happy. We know how to celebrate them. You know, in families, healthy families at least, this kind of love happens automatically. We learn how to prioritize the needs and concerns of others. I'm going to wrap things up here, so just stay with me. We learn how to prioritize the needs and concerns of others just naturally, you know. The babies cry, we go and take care of them, even if it's a great interruption. And if I can't sort of shake the bed to get Olivia to wake up, then um, I'll have to do it myself. <laughs> we prioritize the needs and concerns of our families like that in a healthy family where people function well. Could it be that God wants us to do that as an illustration of his kingdom power in the church? That he wants us to prioritize the needs and concerns of our brothers and sisters Man, this, is, this makes a world of difference for people. I've often thought that for me, I had a, a situation that a lot of people don't have. I grew up with a large extended family who were in the church together. And I almost never got into any trouble. And I hear people talk about all these teenagers who get in trouble and, and think, I, it just didn't happen for me. And I think a large part of that, when I, look, I didn't know it at the time, but I think I've looked back on it now and I think, well, 
I had so many people to answer to. I had uncles and aunts that I knew loved me and cousins who loved me and, and grandparents who loved me. And some of you, a few of you at least, knew my granddad, Big Daddy, who was this big, intimidating man. And uh, I knew I answered to Big Daddy. I didn't want to do something bad and have to answer to Big Daddy. But Big Daddy also took the time to tell me how much he loved me. And he showed up at all my football games. And he'd tell me how proud of me he was. So I didn't want to disappoint Big Daddy. Do you know that a lot of people don't have that blessing? And that they need you to be that for them. I guarantee you there are kids in this room right now who need some of you older ones to tell them you're proud of them. To show up at their ball game or at their recital or whatever it is. To let them know that they matter to you. There are adults in this room who need to be loved by children here. Who are lonely. Who haven't got all their needs met like maybe you do. That's supposed to happen in the body of Christ. And it's supposed to happen because the true light is already shining. And the darkness is passing away. If the praise team wants to come on up, we'll, we'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your direction and your guidance for us. And uh, I love what Jason prayed today. Please don't let us sit idly by. But give us the faith to enter into the realities that we read about with courage and passion because we know that Jesus is alive. And we thank you for that in his name. Amen.